Good morning. I'd like to invite you this morning to turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we'll be reading in verse 7. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Let's pray. Father God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There truly is none like you. There is no end to the depth of your knowledge. Your judgments are unsearchable. Your wisdom is inscrutable. I pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. We give you thanks for the fellowship of the saints and pray that in all things you would be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So prior to today, we've had the opportunity to discuss the ongoing validity of the law of God, specifically God's moral law uh, as, as summed up in the Ten Commandments. And, and we, we've used that as a jumping off point to discuss how God's law is intended to function in the life of both a believer and an unbeliever. We then spent some time uh, starting through the Ten Commandments. We, we've talked through the first and the second commandment, and today we're going to be looking at the third if you were not here or don't remember our previous discussions, it, it can be tempting to look at the Ten Commandments as a study in ancient history. And if you walk away with, with nothing else, I want you to walk away with a right understanding of God's law. Because it, it's true that when we look at God's law, we should count ourselves blessed. But blessed not because we no longer, no longer live under the demands of God's law but because through the work of Christ, we no longer live under the curse of God's law. We've been set free in Christ Jesus so that we don't have to view our standing before God on the basis of our ability to keep his law. And that's a truly awesome gift. However, the freedom that we have in Christ is not a, a license to licentiousness. Christ never commanded that we... Uh, he never commanded a new believer to go and sin all they want, but he said to go and sin no more. And I believe that this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8, 7, when he says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So apart from Christ, we lack the ability to obey God's law. And yet his law is the standard by which we are all judged. So our lives apart from Christ are, are no different than the, the, kingdom of, the kingdom of Belshazzar in Daniel 5. We've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are free from the curse of the law. But I like to think of it as not being free from the demands of the law, but being free to truly obey the law. In other words, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives, for, gives us for the first time the ability and the desire to obey God's law. And that's not to say that we'll live perfectly righteous lives as Christians, but that, the, that to obey God's law will be our delight. That we might say with the psalmist, teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe thy law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in, paths of, in the paths of thy commandments, for I delight in it. So let us keep that in mind as we, as we move forward today looking at the third commandment. Let us not see it as a, another task to heap on our to-do list, but rather l- let the Holy Spirit so move in us that we delight to obey God's law. So with that, in, in a way of preface, let's turn our attention to the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished, who takes his name in vain. This commandment is similar to the second commandment in the sense that it has two parts, the command itself and the consequence for disobedience. So we're we're going to break it down similarly. We're, We're going to start by looking at the commandment and then we'll look briefly at the consequence for disobedience. The the second commandment dealt specifically with our eyes and the making of false images. Whereas the third commandment deals with our speech and the the way we can either honor or dishonor God with our tongue. When my children were little, specifically one of them, uh, whenever they heard an adult speaking and if they were to uh, use God's name as a curse word or um, in in a careless manner, they would turn to me and say, Dad, they, they used the, Lord, the, Lord, the, the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And uh, it was always kind of a funny thing. They, they always said it with that same, the name of the Lord thy God in vain. But my children, like, like many other children, grow up seeing uh, the, the use of God's name as an expletive, as a violation of the third commandment. And, and, and that's, that's a, a wonderful thing to instill in our children a reverence for God's name. However, the third commandment encompasses much more than just using God's name in a careless manner. The commandment is often translated, as as we saw this morning in the NASB and also the ESV, as you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Other translations, such as the NIV, offer something along the lines of you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The verb that's being translated is, is the word uh, nasa, which means to lift or take up. And it's qualified by the word lasa, which, mean, which can be understood as groundless or unreal. So when speaking about the third commandment, it's literally telling us not to take up groundless or unreal words about God. The reason this matters is that the context of these words make it clear that the third commandment is addressing much more than just using God's name carelessly. In fact, if we understand it rightly, the command has both a negative and a positive aspect to it. So I'd like to look at the command in in that light, first the negative side of it. So uh, the negative aspect of the command 
is in line with that, that careless use of the name, but it goes beyond that. Thomas Watson said, when speaking of the third commandment as a negative expression, we shall not take God's name in vain. That is, we must not cast any reflection and dishonor on his name. So that's the negative aspect of this command, bringing dishonor to the name of God. But even this can, can be slightly misunderstood. We tend to think of God's name as the, the name God or Lord or Yahweh, the actual name itself. And while that's literally true, it, it's not specifically what's being addressed in the third commandment. Edmund Clowney put it this way. He said, when the Bible speaks of God's name, it's not indicating that a particular set of letters carries some mystical power. The name of God is the Bible's way of speaking of God's presence in his revelation. Using God's name is a serious act, not because certain sounds are holy, but because God himself is present in his name and all his works reveal that name. In this sense, it's impossible to disassociate God's name from his person, identity, and character. So it's not the, the name of God. It's not that the, the name God is especially holy or set apart, but God is holy and set apart. And his name speaks to his attributes. So the third commandment is not prohibiting, is not simply a prohib, prohibition on profanity or profaning God's name, although it, it does preclude that. It, it's any use of God's name that would detract from his person, his identity, or his character. So at, at this point, I thought it'd be helpful to give a couple of examples uh, to see how, how God's name is commonly used in vain. Um, and this is by no means an exhaustive list. It's just a couple of examples. And the first one that I want to look at is what we've already been talking about, the most obvious way, using God's name as a curse word or a filler word with no intent to honor him. We have, when we use God's name with no awe of him on our hearts, right? And so, uh, again, I, I found Thomas Watson helpful here. He said, he is not to be spoken of except with holy awe upon our hearts, to bring his name in at every turn when we are not thinking of him, to say, oh God, or oh Jesus, is to take God's name in vain. How many are guilty here? Though they have God in their mouths, they have the devil in their hearts. It's a wonder that fire does not come from the Lord to consume them as it did Nadab and Abihu. So when we use God's name in vain, we use God's name in vain when we speak of him in a careless manner or without holy awe or reverence in our hearts. The second example is to take God's name in vain. We take God's name in vain when we speak of him in an irreverent way. This relates to the first, but it is different. Examples of this would be questioning God, uh, questioning his character, and that might be on like the light end, and on the heavy end, maybe cursing God altogether. We all have a tendency to, to question God's judgments when he doesn't act in, a, in accordance to what we think, the way we think he should act. When life is hard, we tend to blame God. And I want to make a distinction here because there's a way of questioning God that's not taking his name in vain. If you remember uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, with Elijah, he's staying with a widowed woman and her son. And Elijah, the, the son of the widowed woman, dies. And Elijah took the boy to his room and laid him on his own bed. And then he, he asked God in verse 20 of chapter 17, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? So Elijah here is questioning God. 
but he's not questioning him in an irreverent tone. He's not saying, God, you can't be good for because, because a good God would not do this or that. A good God would allow this boy to live. He's not questioning God's character. He's pleading to God for mercy. And we know this because in the next verse, he, he cries out to God, Oh Lord, my God, I pray that you let this child's life return to him. I, he was not irreverently questioning God's character. He was questioning God in a way that acknowledges that he is God and he will do what is right. That kind of questioning is done throughout scripture all the time. And it's not a violation of the third commandment. However, the irreverent questioning is different. And, and I think we're all aware of this type of questioning of God. It's questioning his character because we don't think he's benevolent, as benevolent as we are. We don't think that he's as good as we are or as we would be if we were God. That's the kind of questioning that, that impugns his character. It's not a genuine question at all. And, and Paul deals with this kind of questioning in Romans 9 when he uh, is talking in verse 18 and he says that God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And in our limited capacity, we can't grasp the idea of God having mercy on some and not on others. So Paul anticipates this kind of irreverent questioning. And he says, why, you may ask, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? This is the type of, of questioning, questioning God's character. Why does God still find fault? And, and, and Paul's answer, he, he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Why have you made me this way? This is how we take God's name in vain when we question him in irreverent ways. But still, that was on the light side, on the heavy side. It could be cursing God's name altogether. We see examples of that in the early part of Job. Right away in Job chapter 1, we see Job was offering burnt offerings to the Lord for all of his children. And Job says, for perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This kind of cursing is, is a more overt uh, violation of the third commandment to curse God in your heart. Oh, and then that cursing is even more overt later in Job when his wife tells him, she says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. This kind of irreverence towards God is another way in which we take God's name in vain. And the, the, the third and last example on this positive end it, it, I want to just take a moment and talk about oaths. Taking an oath in God's name. And this is the idea of using God's name to invoke credence into your oaths with no care or intent to keeping such an oath. We see God's name used in such a way several times throughout Scripture. For instance, we see it in Jeremiah chapter 5. Here, Jerusalem has turned to godless ways, and Jeremiah accuses them of swearing falsely when he says, as the Lord lives. So Jeremiah goes on to say that not only were they swearing falsely by saying, as the Lord lives, but they refused to repent of that sin. Swearing falsely in God's name is seen as a sin. And, it, and it's a sin as it's a clear violation of the third commandment to make a, a false oath or to swear falsely by God's name is to take his name in vain. However, Jesus takes this idea a step further in the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 5, 33 through 35, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, 
but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And we don't have time to get fully into oaths and vows and vow breaking. Uh, but I, I think it's important to note the, the argument that Jesus is making is not that there's never an appropriate time to make a vow. In fact, Jesus himself questioned, is questioned by the high priest in Matthew 26, 63. And the high priest adjures him in the name of the living God. And Jesus doesn't say, hold on, I can't make oaths in God's name. He says, he, he ultimately answers the high priest. Similarly, Paul makes vows. Uh, he vows before God that he's not lying when he writes to the Galatians in Galatians 1.20. And not to mention Hebrews 6, 13 through 14, makes it clear that God himself vowed by his own name when he promised Abraham that he would bless him and multiply him. So Jesus isn't, isn't prohibiting uh, vows altogether. But if Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount aren't a blanket prohibition on vows and oaths, then, then the question is, what are they? And his, his words really cut to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. We, di- we don't act like many of the Jews do that, w- that he was addressing at that time and twist vows and oaths to the point where no one knows if we're telling the truth or not. When a Christian speaks, you can believe our words because our words are to be trustworthy. We're commissioned to speak the truth. So hopefully I haven't lost you too much on how this relates to the third commandment. To distill it down, the reality is quite simple. To make, false oaths to, to make a false oath to God's name is to take his name in vain. And in the same way as Christians were indwelt by the, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And so for us to make an ow, a vow or an oath, whether we uh, use God's name or not, because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, every word we speak is a vow before God. Every word we speak should be true. J.I. Packer said this, he said, The godly man, therefore, will make promises cautiously, but keep them conscientiously once they are made, knowing that irresponsibility and unreliability here are great and grievous sins. How hard we find this to learn and how much we need to learn it. So in this negative sense, there are many ways that we could come up with that would be considered taking the name of God in vain. In fact, if, if you read Thomas Watson on the subject of the third commandment, he comes up with like 20 examples of how you can take God's name in vain that are uh, completely different. And having examples is helpful, and that's why we went through a couple. But sometimes when we have examples, there's a tendency to create lists and, and say to ourselves, well, as long as I don't break one of these rules, I'm not sinning. And, and unfortunately, that, that would miss our point altogether. I'm not attempting to give lists of things that you shouldn't say. The the, the challenge for us today is to so revere God's name that we seek to only bring honor to his name when we speak. That we would avoid speaking in such a way that could be considered irreverent or that would impugn the character of God. And that's looking at the negative side of the command. But I said that there's also a positive side to it. So if we... Think of the negative side as looking exclusively on the, the prohibitions of the command. Then the positive side would ask the question, does this commandment demand of us a certain way of speaking about God? 
And the answer ultimately, I believe, is yes. The third commandment requires us to revere God's name in our speech. Micah 4, 5 says that though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. For those who are believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, there's no staying silent. To obey the words, you shall not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. It's not enough just to be silent, to not speak God's name. For we're to walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. So our obligation is to revere God's name when we speak. And this, this issue has particular relevance to our culture today. In, in an attempt to make God accessible, some churches have stopped teaching reverence towards God's name altogether. And they started teaching that relevance to the culture is of utmost importance. I remember 20 years ago, you couldn't go to a large evangelical church without seeing a t-shirt or a hat that said, Jesus is my homeboy. And this isn't just a thing from 20 years ago either. Recently I've experienced uh, watching some teenage, uh, teenagers pray and they would open their prayers by calling God, they would say, yo dude, or God dude, or those kinds of things. And th these are things that are being taught by local youth leaders in, in evangelical churches. It's, it's in a reverence that's it's unbelievable. It's taking God's name in vain. And it's really clear when we contrast it with how Jesus teaches us to address God in Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus is teaching how to pray, and he gives us the beginning of what we now call the Lord's Prayer. And he says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're not going to break down the entirety of the Lord's Prayer here, but there's significance in how we are to speak of God. When we approach the throne of grace in prayer, we're to call out to the Most High God, not yo dude, but our Father. Malachi 1.6 says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. So the point here is that to call God Father is to assume respect and honor to his name. However, we don't just call him Father, but Lord in heaven. Psalm 115, 1 through 3 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, Where now is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Saying that he is Lord in heaven is acknowledging his superiority over all things. And the reality that he orders all things here below by his mercy. It reminds us of our estate when we think of Psalm 103, 13 through 14. Just as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. We are but dust before God and he orders all things here below. He is Lord in heaven. So our Father, Lord in heaven, is an acknowledgement of who He is, is, of who we are before Him. It's to address God in the proper context. 
And finally, what's often called the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. And this is the most relevant part to the context of the third commandment. To not take the name of God in vain requires that we hallow his name. This is one more Thomas Watson quote here, but I found it particularly helpful. It's from his book titled, The Lord's Prayer. I know uh, we've, we've heard it read before us in uh, Sunday school a time or two before, but it's really helpful. He says that, hallowed be your name in the Latin is, sanctified be your name. In this petition, we pray that God's name may shine forth gloriously and that it may be honored and sanctified by us in the whole course and tenor of our lives. It was the angel's song, glory be to God in the highest. That is, let the name be glorified and hallowed. This petition is set in the forefront to show that the hallowing of God's name is to be preferred before all things. It is to be preferred before life. We pray, hallowed be your name before we pray, give us this day our daily bread. It is to be preferred before salvation. Romans 9, 23, God's glory is more worth than salvation of all men's souls. As Christ said to, uh, of love in Matthew 23, 38, this is the first and greatest commandment. So I may say of this petition, hallowed be your name is the first and greatest petition. It contains the most weighty thing in true religion, which is God's glory. When we speak of God, we're to have reverence towards his name, to honor his name. We're to make his name holy. One last thought on this positive aspect of the third commandment. God's name is representative of God himself. And, and we talked about this a little bit with Edmund Clowney earlier, but it's why it's so important to revere his name and to make it holy. We see it exemplified in Isaiah 30, verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. Burning is his anger and dense is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation and his tongue is like a consuming fire. J. Alex uh, Modier said of this verse that his name is the summary of his revealed character. I found that really helpful that God's name is the summary of his revealed character. So to not hold God's name in high honor is to take God's name in vain. It's to take his revealed character in vain. It's to make light of the character of the living God. And this helps us to see why this commandment takes us a, a, such a prominent place in God's moral law. So thus far, we've spoken about the third commandment, namely that you shall not, the, the command itself, namely that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We talked about the negative implications, how we are commanded to not speak, and the positive, how we are commanded to speak of God. And finally, I wanted to take a brief moment and talk about the second half of this command. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, I only have a couple of remarks on this second portion of the commandment, and I, and I hope it will kind of adequately serve as, a, as my closing remarks. We, we know from this verse that disobeying the third commandment is accompanied by divine punishment. Now, the verse does not specify what the punishment is, and this is probably because there are many ways in which this commandment can be broken and the punishment will be doled out in accordance with the nature of the offense. But what I want to draw our attention to is the fact that there will be punishment. Now, the obvious question that springs from such a statement is when. 
When will this punishment take place? And once again, the verse does not indicate specifically. However, there's a simple answer to the question. There will either be temporal punishment in this life or there will be eternal punishment after this life. Blasphemy and the taking of God's name in vain is a serious subject. So serious that in Levitical law, it was punishable by death. We're given an example of this in Leviticus 24, 11 through 16 to serve as a warning. It says that the, the son of the Israelite woman the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. They put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring the one who has cursed outside the camp and let all who heard it lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak of the sons of Israel saying, if anyone curses his God, then he, he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The aliens, as well as the native, when, the, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Now this seems like really harsh punishment. In fact, most of us look, like a, look at a story like this and conclude that the punishment doesn't really fit the crime. This boy blasphemed, he, he, he used God's name in vain and cursed among the people and was stoned to death. And, and if you think that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, I, I think that we're looking at it backwards. The, the reason we think that the punishment doesn't fit the crime is because we have so watered down our understanding of God's law that we don't see blasphemy and the taking of God's name in vain as an unspeakably horrific sin. We're so callous that when we hear God's name taken in vain, we don't so much as blush. And part of that is our culture. We see it every day. We hear it every day. And we be, we've become almost immune to it. So when we hear God's name, so when we hear that, that God punished blasphemy by death, instead of thinking God too harsh, we should think of our zeal for God's glory as much too small. But maybe you're not a believer and you hear stories like this one and think, well, at least I live in a modern American context where I'm not going to be stoned for blasphemy. And to some degree, you're right. It's not likely that you're going to be stoned for taking God's name in vain. However, for you, there's more to this story. For the verse tells us that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. You may have escaped temporal punishment, but eternal punishment will be much, much worse. This is not just any punishment either. This is punishment from the Lord himself. The Lord will not leave him unpunished. This reminds me of Hebrews 10, 31 where it says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Being stoned to death may sound like a terrible death, but it's nothing compared to the wrath of God being poured out on your soul. As Matthew Henry points out, their greatest misery will be the immediate impressions of divine wrath on the soul. When he punishes them by creatures, the instrument abates something of the force of the blow. But when he does it by his own hand, it is infinite misery. So to take God's name in vain will lead to your punishment and there will be no end to the misery 
that you incur. However, I want to leave us with one final thought, and that's that this punishment has been dealt with on your behalf. We all deserve the eternal wrath of God poured out on our soul. We have all taken God's name in vain on top of many other sins. And yet God has extended grace to us through faith in Jesus Christ, who took our sins upon himself and died so that those who have faith in him might live. So don't be content thinking that because you've temporarily escaped punishment, because punishment has been delayed, that it's not coming. Punishment is coming. But there is hope if you repent and turn to Christ. And for the majority of us in this room, let this be a sweet reminder. Let this be a reminder of God's grace. The grace that God has shown to us that he didn't overlook our sins, but he laid our sins upon Christ. So you are not bound to the law for the sake of earning God's favor. Christ has earned God's favor on your behalf. You are not bound to the law you, uh, you are bound to the law, but you are freed from the curse of the law. And when we hear the words, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, it's not a burden to us, but our greatest joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your glorious name. And we thank you, God, that you know our frame and that we are but dust, and that you know that we have no ability in and of ourselves to come to you. And we have no standing to do so because we're sinners deserving of divine punishment. But God, we're so thankful that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to, to die on our behalf. And God, we pray that all of your children would hear your words and come to you. That they may embrace the grace that is extended to them. God, we thank you. We give you glory and honor in all things. We lift your name up above every name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.